And I gave this just a one-word title of authenticity, um, and you may have a heading in your Bible, something along the lines of a, a genuine faith or the marks of a true Christian, something like that. And uh, we're going to be focused in on a, a, some verses there in a moment. But we want to be authentic as Christians. If I, we've, we've heard people say this before. If you were put on trial for, Christ, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I would say, if you were on trial for being a, a genuine person, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that? Because the world is full of fake sincerity, right? Lip service, appearance over substance, you know. We, we know that's in the world. We, we see it everywhere. Um, if you're a customer of any business, uh, to some extent, yes, they're there to serve you, but they also are there to serve themselves and make a profit. And, and sometimes it's hard to know, are, are you sincerely liking me when I come into your store? Or are you just putting on the smile so that I come back again? You know, we don't know sometimes. But we want to be genuine. We don't want to worry about what other people are. We need to worry about how we're doing. And biblical standards for living in our world are scoffed at, aren't they? By many people. Children obey your parents. And yet we see a lot of uh, you know, stories and movies and stuff and the, the parents are dumb and the kids need to take over and make the decisions because the parents don't know what they're doing. In fact, a lot of uh, Disney movies are that way, honestly. Um, husbands love your wives. Oh, you know, wives respect your husband. Oh, that's a tough one for uh, the world. Work hard for your employer without grumbling. Why is it so hard to do those things? Well, it's because we still battle our flesh. Remember Romans chapter 7. We're free from sin, and yet we do it. <laughs> We're in the spirit, yet we still are stuck here for now in this body of death, as Paul said. We are wretched. Yet, while remembering and being aware of our awful potential and our wretchedness, at the same time, we need to live in hope and live with hope because our peace with God is secure through Jesus Christ. And so we live in hope and peace with God if we're in Christ because we're not, we're not living according to the flesh, but we're living according to the Spirit. And of course, this is our challenge, right? To live according to the Spirit. We partner with God in this. And though He ultimately will carry us through if we're in Christ, we are still responsible to live it out. And to do that, we must consider ourselves living sacrifices. Remember from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And be transformed by the what? The renewing of our mind. And so this passage is in a context. It is a context, actually. I'm going to read today the whole chapter of tw uh, chapter 12. It's not that long. Uh, but we need to always stay in the context and realize what is going on here. So Paul begins with this appeal. Uh, Present yourselves and then do not be conformed, but rather be transformed. And then he shows immediately after that what that should look like, which is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Realize the gifts you have. Figure out how to put them to use for God's kingdom in unity and to be genuine. So I'm going to read chapter 12 
again for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our focus this morning is mostly going to be from verses 9 through 13. And so we will go through those. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine, authentic. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So it's, it should be genuine. It should be the real article. It's not a cheap knockoff. It's not a cheap imitation, right? Like in, my, in our van, we have, you know, these wood grain little inserts on stuff. But guess what? They're not real wood grain. They're plastic. And they're stuck on with glue or tape or whatever. Okay, now if you want to go a little higher... In your car purchasing, you can find cars that have real wood in there. Bird's eye maple or something like that on the dash. But, but what we have in the van is what I'm saying is it's a cheap veneer. It's, it's, it's fake wood. We want to be genuine Christians, genuine loving people. Uh, and so that's what we need to focus ourselves on is to see where we're at. And uh, so as we go through this, we need to first uh, examine our own selves. And that's difficult because sometimes when we examine our own selves, we see things there that we don't like. 
But we need to do it because if we use God's word to purify ourselves, to get ourselves in the right place, we will experience that joy and the peace that God promises. So I want to look at a, a cross-reference here, kind of, from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. Peter writes something kind of similar here. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. So that's a command, okay? Now let's see in verse 23 the motivation behind that command. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right, we see this happening. It's that season where exactly that is happening right now, right? The grass is withering, the flowers are falling, and uh, it won't be long be before we won't have much green to look at for a while. But it, it's telling us that, Peter's telling us that that's something that happens in our world, this seasonal thing. The grass is not always green, right? But the word of the Lord remains forever. And so here's the motivation. He says first in verse 22, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. And then he gives the motivation. Why? Because you have been born again. And it, you're not born of perishable seed. You're imperishable. And you were born again through the living and abiding word of God. And the word of the Lord remains forever. And so he's giving the motivation. And then he says, this was the good news that was preached to you. Now, I've said this before, and I believe it's true, that God's commands always come with a motivation that God will give to, to keep the command. Even at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. He gives the motivation for it. Why? I brought you out of Egypt. I did something for you. Now honor me and keep my commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commands. So he's saying, let love be genuine. Then he says, abhor what is evil. We don't use that word probably too much, do we? Abhor. Um, it, it means like having a vile reaction. Like, like you just smelled something that almost makes your guts want to come up. That's what we should have as an instinctual response to evil. Do we abhor what is evil? Or are we okay with it? When our culture continues to slide, are we part of those who would say, well, that's where freedom takes people, we're a free country, and so whatever. Or do we see that evil and abhor it? And so many Christians, in order to be seen as tolerant in this world, they've forgotten that they're supposed to abhor evil. In many denominations, a vote has been cast and the, the laws have been changed to call evil good. Too many Christians have chosen to put aside this command that we're to abhor evil and have not only stood by and ignored evil, but they've actually, in some cases, taken positions to support it. Or they will say, well, I'm against it, but, you know, who am I to tell people what to do, right? 
And so in some Christian circles, you'll hear people say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I do think abortion is bad, but, you know, people ought to have the right to do it. Or they'll say, yeah, no, I don't really think a homosexual marriage is a good thing, but, you know, people have their rights. They should be having the right to do that. But the decision to allow or not allow those things is not in our hands. That's in God's hands. God makes the law for mankind, okay? So the government then is responsible not to mock God's ways and affirm evil, but to protect rights that God gives. That, that's one of the interesting things about our nation as a founding documents, that it recognizes that the rights we do have are given by God, not by the government. That's a pretty good thing. We're, we're fortunate to have that. But God does not give the right to murder babies. Nor does he give the right for people to redefine marriage or many of those other things. So one thing that uh, is, is unique about our, our way our government works, our Constitution, is that we have those amendments, the Bill of Rights. And they don't tell us what the government can do. If you've ever noticed, they tell us what the government can't do. If you look down, I read them, I think it was the 4th of July, I read the Bill of Rights. They say what the government can't do. They don't say what the government can do. The rights, according to our Constitution, come from God. And the government's responsibility is to make sure those rights are there. But many in government have violated that concept with, with the rights the, um, because the rights are to, are to be from God. That means that any new rights that God does not give are opposed to him. And as if that weren't bad enough for the government to do it, as I said, many churches have gone this way. And when we get to Romans 13, I'm going to spend a little time talking about what the biblical mandate for a government is. Because if you look at Romans 13 and it says we're subject to be subject to the governing authorities, I want us to understand as Christians how far does that go? Where does that end? Some of you have done the Truth Project, and is it Del Tackett or Dale Tackett? I can never remember. But he, in that teaching, he talks about the different spheres that God gives. He gives a sphere of responsibility to the family. He gives a, sp a sphere of um, authority to the husband and wife. He gives a sphere of authority to the church. And then there's a sphere of authority that God does give to the government. And what happens when those uh, leaders in those different spheres violate the limits of their sphere? And we're going to talk about that a little bit, probably in a few weeks here. Now... Our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, in the Statement of Faith, which if we're members of the church, we say we agree with this, it says the Old and New Testaments are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of man, and they can constitute the divine and only rule for faith and practice. What that means is that we go to the word of God to see what we ought to do. We don't base our ideas upon whatever is popular in our world today. And so when we try to keep and obey Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we must continually go where? To God's word. And that's where we learn where, how we ought to live. Continuing on in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Sometimes brotherly affection is stronger among friends than family members. Have you ever noticed that? 
Sometimes people are closer with their friends than they are with their own family. But in the church, we ought to have a brotherly affection because we are all indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, some of you are competitive, and that's a good thing. Here's your license in Scripture. I don't know if it's the only spot, but it's one license you have in Scripture to be competitive. Outdo one another in showing honor. So this is a competition, if you were to take it that way, that the winner isn't glorified. The winner is the one who brings honor to others. And that's what Paul is saying. Outdo one another in bringing honor to others. He writes in Philippians 2 as well. In fact, this was, uh, Mark said this earlier, and I didn't plan this either, Mark. But this is also from Mark uh, Glade's reading. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Moving down to verse 11 of Romans 12, it says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And so zeal is something that some people seem to have more naturally than others. But Paul says don't be slothful. One of the great dangers, we see this in the Proverbs as well, is kind of laziness or um, you know, just not having an ambition to get things done. And he doesn't want us to be slothful in zeal. He wants us to have, and what is zeal? Zeal is like this fervency, this, this desire to see the God's kingdom come here on earth, to honor God with our lives. And we're supposed to not be slothful in that, but rather be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And then we're to rejoice in hope. And that should be something that we put in our reminder all the time, especially when the world seems kind of crazy. You, you can say, you know what? All right, there's strife in my community over COVID. There's strife in the government. There's strife here and there's riots here and there's all this. But guess what? I rejoice in hope because I have the hope that my Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. And in the end, I will be spending my eternity with him. And that's how we can do that. We need to remind ourselves of what Scripture tells us about what our status is when we're in Christ. Then he says, be patient in tribulation. Well, this is an interesting one. You know, it says, don't be, it doesn't say, be patient if you happen to run across any tribulation. He doesn't uh, say if your faith is really strong enough, you will avoid temp tribulation at all. No, he says be patient in tribulation. It almost seems like what a lot of other scripture tells us is that there's something to be expected. Even though we have that hope in our eternal future, and we know that there will be a time where we'll have eternal peace, and eternal uh, happiness and all of that, in the meantime, the Bible says over and over and over again, we will have trouble in this world. Jesus himself said it. And he said, if they hated me, they will hate you. The servant's not greater than his master. So we can't expect to just say, well, God has me protected from all tribulation. And so 
I don't need to do that. Rather, we need to be patient in trans tribulation. And how can we be patient? Because of the hope, right? We can say, eventually, I get through this. Eventually, God brings me safely home. I want to just mention, too, because, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times when we think of the end times, there's a little confusion sometimes about the tribulation versus the wrath of God. And it's important that we understand they're not the same thing necessarily. The wrath of God, Christians, those in Christ, will be preserved from. They will not endure those cups being poured out that you read about in Revelation. I, they're protected from God's wrath through the cross. Uh, but we're not protected from tribulations or persecutions from other people. And so that's an important thing to remember. Wrath and tribulation, because a lot of people think, well, the, the great tribulation means all tribulation. That's not what, what the Bible teaches. It actually teaches that the wrath of God we are protected from as Christians. But we will have tribulations that come in the, fa in the form of persecutions and other hardships. So that's just a side note, but... He wrote something similar in Colossians 4 as well, starting at verse 2. He said, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we, we take the whole sentence in Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. These three things go together. How can you rejoice in hope? How can you be patient in tribulation? By being constant in prayer. And so we need to focus on that as well. So in Colossians 4, 2 and 4, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so again and again we see reminders. Jesus was a model for prayer as well. And uh, we see reminders that we need to... Keep our relationship with God strong by having communication with him. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to, sh to show hospitality. Now, once a month, when next week will be the time, we take a benevolent fund offering, and this is one way that we try as a church body to do this, contributing to the needs of the saints. But I may say something that may be a little controversial here but i would say that in one sense the benevolent fund is literally passing the buck it's very easy in one way to put some money in a plate and say well the elders will take care of it and if someone has a need they'll write a check and they'll do it and we do we have many great opportunities to use the benevolent fund and and i'm not saying we shouldn't do that at all but I am saying that you will be blessed when you help others in a more personal way. Now, what is the right way to go about helping with that? Um, I, I think this is a little absurd, but just to kind of make an absurd point. If, if we, uh, well, we haven't been passing a plate for a while now, but back when we used to pass the benevolent plate, if we said, now stand up and shout how much you're putting in, and it went around, and, and well, maybe that would help, actually. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but do we do it to draw attention to ourselves, to get credit for it? 
Let's see what Jesus said. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. This is actually our kids in Bible quiz are in Matthew, uh, the first part right now, so they're, practic- they're learning this. But here's what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, uh, we do see this today, don't we? I saw something recently, and you see this a lot, where a corporation will announce, we're giving this much money to such and such a... So Apple recently, I saw a press release from Apple, and it said, we're giving a million dollars to, I don't remember what the cause was, but it was some cause. (laughs) And everybody says, wow, a million dollars, until they remember that Apple just became the first $2 trillion valuation company in the world. And, and if you think, that's, I think, is a trillion, a million millions? I, I, I can't remember. I, I mean, someone with better math skills than me can try to figure that out. But it's, it's a very tiny and infinitesimal percentage of their wealth that they gave away. That'd be kind of like me putting a nickel in one of those things at the gas station and saying, can I have everyone's attention, please? I just want you to know that the little cup there to raise money for so-and-so's child I put five cents in there. You don't have to thank me. We'd say that's ridiculous, wouldn't we? I hope I'll put some change in there from time to time and just not be noticed. And uh, and so that's something that we need to really focus on as well, is that um, it's, it's easy to pass the buck and let someone else do it. And it's also easy to say, well, I will, uh, I'll give money to this cause, but my name better be on a plaque somewhere. And uh, I remember talking with the person at the Bible college I went to, and uh, he was, his job basically was to go around and raise funds for the college, which Christian colleges are always uh, on the last dollar, it seems, and you see their letters, and it's always a desperate plea, and that's just how it is. But it was interesting in this conversation, and he, he said, you know, they'll never give to the general fund, a lot of these really wealthy people. But if you're building a new fitness center or you're adding on to the library and you'll put their name attached to it, well, then they'll give money to it. And so you see it at the Bible college I went to, almost every building there has a person's name on it. But they will, but they'll, so in the middle of building brand new buildings, you would get letters and it would say, we're desperate, we almost don't have enough money to make it through the, the rest of the summer. I'm like, but you're building a brand new building. Well, yeah, because someone gave that specifically for that so that their name would go on it. And we got to be careful with that because uh, the Lord loves it when we're generous and uh, he wants to reward us for that. But when we say, put my name on a plaque, we've already received our reward. And then he talks about hospitality there at the end. I want to just mention that as well. That's, there's a context for that is, that we need to understand. So when Paul wrote this about hospitality, it had a much more significant meaning probably than it does to us today. 
And the reason for that is if someone traveled to another place in those days, they didn't uh, get on Priceline ahead of time and say, well, should we stay at the Holiday Inn Express or the Days Inn? Which should we pick? You know, or, or they didn't wait till they got in town to try to check into a hotel. There were no hotels. And so Christians who traveled, especially in those days, they've probably been ostracized because of their faith in Christ from their, their broader community. And they relied on other Christians to take them in. So if you went from point A to point B and you needed to stay overnight, you, you really were hoping you could find some Christians who would take you in. And that's, that's very different from our context today. So we have a hard time to understand that sometimes. Because hospitality is different today. We, we kind of think hospitality is well, we have someone over for dinner or something like that. But in Paul's day, if we look at how important it was to show hospitality, we need to consider what does that mean today. Now, I did, I have witnessed one example of something similar to this, and it was shortly before Janelle and I got married, um, and we were, we were up there at her parents' house in Canada, and I don't know if you remember this, Janelle, and if, I don't know who they were, but this family was stuck in town. The snow had come, and this is a little town about the size of Wagner, and they came over to uh, Janelle's parents' house, and said, we're stuck, can we stay overnight? And, it, and uh, you know, it's a sudden kind of surprise, right? You've got to reassign some rooms and, and all of this. But I saw her parents deal with it with great joy and never showed any sign of being put out or anything like that. And actually, I think we all had a great time. Um, now, on the other hand, so that was an emergency kind of situation. We don't want to be presumptuous either. We don't want to just assume that someone ought to show us hospitality. We have kind of a different situation today. We normally don't travel to another town and don't tell someone we're coming. Uh, maybe, maybe you do. I, I don't do that. But uh, we have phones now. We have text. We have ways to let people know, hey, I'm coming. And, uh, and so that's a little different. But uh, people in those days, they literally had to drop everything. Oh, they, we have guests. Yay. You know, we hope we have enough bread today. <laughs> you know, so, so I'll just close by reading those verses 9 through 13 again. Let's put them together and think about what that means, how God wants us to live a genuine life. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And we'll continue. There's more, there's more to it. We'll get there next week. But let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word and how it teaches us. And I pray, Lord, as we examine these passages like this sometimes lord it shows us an area where we may may need some work and i pray lord that we'd be humble enough to admit that we need to improve if we do and lord that we would uh, rely on your help as well to give us the strength and the will to do your word in jesus name amen